This episode is brought to you in part by B&H Publishing Group. Sam Alberry's new kids' book, God's Go-Togethers, provides a helpful foundation for explaining why God made men and women as a special pair to complement each other in marriage and beyond. Learn more at godsgotogethers.com. Halloween has always been a tricky day for conservative Protestants. It's long been seen as a celebration of the dark, joking about bloody gore, the living dead, things like that. But this year, death and darkness doesn't seem quite so amusing. Uh, October 31st comes as more than 1.1 million people around the world have died of COVID-19. And nearly 20% of those deaths, one out of five, have occurred in the U.S., a country where COVID-19 cases are once again on the rise. As parents are making last-minute decisions about what to do about trick-or-treating this year, and as churches cancel their harvest festivals and their trunk-or-treat events, as parties are moving on to Zoom and even schools are foregoing their annual costume parades, we wondered, is this weird Halloween in a very weird year the opportunity for better Christian thinking and discipleship? Can rethinking this season where we oddly engage death and darkness help us deal with death and darkness? for the rest of this COVID season and for the rest of our lives. And if we can do that, and that's kind of the stuff we do here at Christianity Today, we want to re-engage in a more biblical and Christian way. Where do we look? Do we look back to Halloween's connections to All Saints Day? Or do we look to other ways the church has formed its spiritual disciplines around death and darkness? These are questions that we hope to engage next hour or so. You are listening to Quick to Listen, where we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, Global Media Manager at Christianity Today. And I'm Ted Olson, Editorial Director at Christianity Today. Morgan, let's do our gut check. Tell me about your weird 2020 Halloween Well, I just should offer a disclaimer that I do feel like understanding how to celebrate Halloween as an adult has never been very clear to me. Yeah, I always find it weird when people ask me quite literally, like, what are you going to dress up as for Halloween? (laughs) Like, oh, okay. Well, I'm definitely years into adulthood at this point, but I guess we're still going to ask that question for us seriously. I think what's interesting is that this year, Halloween night is actually daylight savings time. There's something kind of intense about the fact that it's going to get a lot darker a lot earlier after October 31st. And then, of course, we mentioned the election is only a couple days after this. There's just a lot of really intense things that seem to be happening right now. To be honest, I'm not sure that I have had a lot of chances to process everything. In fact, I've almost been feeling this sense of dread, heaviness, pain, sadness, trauma that I feel like it's just in the air all the time right now. But I haven't had a good place to really understand exactly the effect of it on myself. So I'm glad that we're going to actually spend some time talking about the darker things this week because I know I want to figure out how I'm thinking about it and how it's affecting me socially, spiritually, emotionally, and so forth. Yeah, it's funny how you mentioned that question as an adult, people are asking, what are you dressing up as? I think that may be, I don't know if that's a Morgan Lee question, assuming that because you're such a, a fun person engaged in so many <laughs> different things, if people just assume that you will. I remember like one of my first years working at Christianity Today, 
I was either in college. I guess I must have been, no, because I started just a couple days after Halloween. So it must have been my first Halloween here would have been a year into working here. And I had just graduated. I dressed up. I like came, you know, it was like not a major dress up. It was like a pirate or, you know, something that's just like, you know, you throw on a eye patch and a hat and a hoop earring and you come on it hook on my hand, a pig leg. I don't remember all exactly what I had, but it was minor. It was a minor how and, and, and everyone looked at me like I was crazy. I was clear, definitely the only person in the building who had any kind of Halloween outfit at all. I thought grown-ups don't so much do this at the office. But now, you know, this now we're, you know, 25 years later. Like, no, it's like totally, it was totally common before we all, you know, were remote and distant on COVID time that people would come to the office occasionally with some Halloween decorations. And I think that's reflective of like the culture like halloween seems to have gotten bigger and bigger and bigger every year and the decorations in people's yards have gotten bigger and bigger and bigger and more oddly yes. more christmasy and more christmasy yes. every year it's bigger than christmas i think the, the lawn decoration game is bigger than christmas it's crazy and so i there's an element where i'm kind of grateful like the like <laughs> this is like the one thing i'm grateful in 2020 at least in wheaton here it's kind of been a timeout like there's still like a couple houses that have decorations up wait are you a grinch about halloween (laughs) i'm not a grinch about halloween well yeah i'm a little bit of a grinch about halloween i'm a grinch about the christmasification of halloween for sure those orange lights i hate those orange you know like the orange christmas lights oh man those those actually make me angry i'm like those those christmas lights are christmas lights don't do this a break for halloween or we can be like ah you know what maybe let's dial it back a little bit and just have it be fill up to me like halloween would be one night long I don't love that it's you know becoming a, a two month deal. The little kids dress up, they go door to door, they get candy, and then you know I as a dad get to eat it over the next few days. Love it. That's that's that that's a good holiday for me. But our conversation that's as much Halloween talk as we're probably going to have because we're really going to talk a little bit more about death and darkness, the ways the church has dealt with it. But I am eager to talk to some of this stuff with our guest. Who is our guest today, Morgan? Tish Harrison Warren, who many people are familiar with because she is a columnist for Christianity Today. She's also a priest in the Anglican Church in North America and the author of Liturgy of the Ordinary, Sacred Practices in Everyday Life, which was Christianity Today's 2018 Book of the Year. Her next book is Prayer in the Night for Those Who Work or Watch or Weep, and it will be released on January 26th of next year. Hey, Tish, how's it going? Good. I feel like I didn't know when to chime in, but I need to add to my bio that I'm also going to out myself as kind of a Grinch about Halloween as well. (laughs) (laughs) I am. I mean, if you're a listener and you like are, you know, the person with the 10 foot like blow up pumpkin and ghost and jack lantern in front of your house, like that's fine. It's like this one isn't a hill that I'm going to die on, but my kids are like desperate to get us to decorate. And we're like, nope, it's just never going to happen. We're not going to decorate for Halloween. We're not. I can only have so many festal seasons in a year. This is not one and I'm not going to make it into one. <laughs> right on. Like, so no, no, no pumpkin carving even for you guys? No, this we year. pumpkin carve because, you know, I mean, I have a 10 year old and a seven year old. Like I'm not, we're not like cruel and I'm not and I'm, just, I'm not dogmatic about it like they, they like they like are gonna dress up and they pick their costumes out but it's like it's what you said it's like it's like one day like that's it like we go to a pumpkin patch but that's more like harvest and like hot cider and like just like fun I mean we have neighbors that have like sound effects you walk by their house and it goes wah, 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 wah. and so um <laughs> and that's great for them but that's just never too much to my 
children's dismay. That's just, that will never be us. That's just, we do, we have a jack-o'-lantern and that's it. That's all we do. We'll trick or treat, but we don't decorate or there's no tombs in our yard now or anything like that. After four years of buying a pumpkin with the intent of carving it, this and then never quite getting around to it because the kids were kind of not into it, we bought a fake pumpkin this year. (laughs) And we're just like, we'll just have it be our October decoration. I'm like, man, I feel so bad getting a fake pumpkin, but it's something. It's something to do. There you go. It's the, you know. Well, I I love that we have so many hot takes about Halloween right now. (laughs) For to go beyond all of the extreme reactions that we have about Halloween, I guess I'll pivot us back to the darker things that we would like to talk about. One of those things, obviously, being death, which Ted mentioned at the beginning of the show. Tish, what would you say that our culture celebrations of Halloween say about our culture's beliefs about death and how we understand it? Typically, it's silly, right? I mean, it sort of trivializes darkness in some ways. And where I am anyway, there's the portrayals of death are kind of funny or silly. And actually, this is part of historic Halloween, right? I mean, part of the idea of people dressing up like goblins and and that sort of thing is that it's to it's to mock the devil like it's to make it's to mock evil to basically say like you have no power over us this is silly like it's so there are folks who would say historically it wasn't really about glorifying darkness as much as mocking the powers showing them that they're not all that powerful right luther is like the best example of this just constant like when you look at luther's insults to satan like they're i can't even quote them on this podcast because they're so crass but they're they're he's just mocking satan all the time and calling him bad words and that sort of thing so it's sort of i think in that like vein that's not really how we practice it because my kids dress up as like puppy dogs and stuff that in no way has to do with that if anything i would say i don't think halloween is a true reckoning with death sort of makes light of it. I mean, if there's any holiday that that sort of like truly deals with mortality, it would I would think it would be Ash Wednesday, not Halloween. Exactly. What's interesting to think about with Halloween, though, is the supernatural, because our culture isn't exactly materialist. I actually read somewhere recently that more people believe in demons than angels. I'm not sure why that is, but it's made kind of light and silly, I think, also sometimes in Halloween. There was this kind of connection between kind of the supernatural and death and, you know, Halloween kind of wrapping both of those up. Your book gets into a little bit of that with these things being associated with nighttime as well, that nighttime is this kind of the term thin space. I don't know. That phrase gets thrown around a heck of a lot sometimes. It is a time when we're thoughts about death sometimes come to mind. Thoughts about the supernatural come to mind where I personally have definitely felt more aware of spiritual warfare at night as I'm trying to sleep. But there's this kind of uh, all things nighttime that Halloween is becoming. And, you know, one aspect of that may be also is, is the increasing I guess, sexualization of Halloween, which is just, oh man, that is fairly recent and fairly horrific in its ways. I guess that that's biblical to some degree to see a connection between night time and principalities and powers, demonic oppression in some ways. I do talk about this in my book. One of actually the 
beginning quote to the book is from Jürgen Moltmann, and he talks about nighttime is always this symbol of lostness, like the lostness of men and women of darkness itself. I also quote Seshlav Melosh in a poem, he says, where I don't have the exact quote in front of me, I could pull it up, but it's like, nighttime, there's this primitive sense of us that knows good from evil, that experiences that, and it says, like, at nighttime, in the darkness of empty rooms, like that there's something that even as children, like there's, there's this vulnerability that we feel. So the book talks about night as really, I don't use the term thin space, but I do talk about it as a daily experience of human vulnerability, vulnerability, not in the sense of emotional exposure, but in the sense of we can be wounded, which is what vulnerable actually literally means wounded in body and mind and soul and spirit, right? And so it is the sense of our smallness a lot of times for I think all of us that experience some of that at night, our own vulnerability. And the more you get away from light and electric light, the deeper that sort of you feel that. And of course, that's with death, but it's also with sleep. There's been so much literature about sleep as a way of of experiencing like a little taste of death every night. But also, I have one chapter in the book about the chapter is on the phrase of this Compline prayer that the book is framed around, but the ch- phrase is give your angels charge over those who sleep. And I talk about how the vulnerability that we feel is not just physical vulnerability. It's to some extent like supernatural. It's metaphysical that there is some part of us that sits at night and feels we're in this vast universe that anything is possible. I mentioned in there that every single human civilization that is on earth, I read this in a magazine devoted, the whole thing was about sort of supernatural. And they that so far, every human civilization has some kind of spirit story at night, some kind of ghost story or goblin story or spirit story. There's something about humans that when we get into darkness, there is this sort of wondering about like, are we alone? Like what else is in the universe? Like that's sort of transhuman across all human societies. We see this. Dish, as you were writing this book this year, how did the larger events of this year, like the pandemic being one of them, affect your own thought process? I wrote this book almost entirely before COVID, really entirely before COVID hit. I it, <laughs> Wow. Because books take a long time to write, right? And so I started writing this book two years ago. The very first page of the, I have a note to reader, the readers to begin the book that's sort of like, I don't really talk about COVID in this. And it was a huge decision actually with the publisher and I having to wrestle through like, do I rewrite it? Do I go back and put because it's dealing with human vulnerability. I have an entire chapter on sickness. I have an entire chapter on like grief and weeping and the way our culture grieves and and so much about vulnerability and anxiety and so much about death, weariness. And so it's like so, so, so 2020, but it wasn't largely written in 2020. I didn't write it with that in mind. And and also, I hope that people continue to read the book for decades and decades long after COVID-19. So I didn't rewrite it. But man, it's it's a little uncanny. It's weird that I wrote this book and how some of the things resonate. There's a part about it, a prayer and work that kind of human work that we do to bring justice and wholeness to the world and how sometimes people 
put that against prayer as if those are opposed to one another. And I have this line in it, I'm talking about hand washing and modern sewage and stuff like that, how much that's like cut down on death. But I have this line that says something like, maybe there's not such a huge space between the act of washing our hands and raising our hands in prayer. Maybe the goodness that comes and the health that comes from one is not so far from the goodness and the health that comes from another. I wrote that in like 2018, which is weird because hand washing itself has become such a public conversation. So more that my book has changed the way that I think about COVID-19 than COVID-19 changed the book. It's really hooked around the Office of Compline, which is this final prayer service of the day, and you're an Anglican priest, and that's the Anglican service. And it's played around the prayer often attributed to Augustine. So for our listeners who may not be as familiar, can you just kind of go over that prayer that is kind of helpful for as day ends and sleep time begins? So this is just one prayer in Compline. Keep watch, dear Lord, with those who work or watch, or weep this night. Give your angels charge over those who sleep. Tend the sick, Lord Christ. Give rest to the weary. Bless the dying. Soothe the suffering. Pity the afflicted. Shield the joyous. And all for your love's sake. Amen. Yeah, it's a a daily prayer. But there is this kind of nightly reminder of the people who are generally suffering more than we are, I guess, in some ways, as we go to sleep. Some of those things may be us. We may be those who are sick or weary or or dying or suffering, afflicted, also joyous, perhaps. There's been a lot of attention in kind of our Christian kind of CT reader type circles about importance of daily liturgy. How does it shape us to kind of have a prayer that we're doing every night as we're laying down that hits kind of some of these particular notes? I kind of grew up with bedtime prayers a little bit more. Thanks for this day. You know, thanks for the blessings. Be with maybe particular names that come to mind. What does this particular liturgy do in our relationship with God that forms us? Yeah, well, to answer that question, I really struggle with night. So we're talking about nighttime and vulnerability and all of this in 2017 when We moved across the country, and a week later, my father passed away suddenly during the night. And next month, I had a miscarriage and pretty traumatic medical experience, a hemorrhage because of that, and then ended up getting pregnant again and had a really hard pregnancy, was on bed rest for a while, and then we lost our son, second trimester. So all that to say, at the end of that, uh, it was probably six to nine month period, Nights had always been hard, but they were really hard then. It just felt like the darkness amplified the grief, the anxiety, the doubt, questions I had about God. I could kind of keep myself occupied during the day. And then nighttime hit and things got were like I would cry or I'd be anxious. So I would just sort of habitually go to like lots of Netflix, lots and lots of like surfing and surfing the internet. But when you're so tired and you know you should go to bed but you just like keep reading the infinite internet (laughs) so i really would just fill nights as a way of kind of numbing not dealing with the vulnerability that i felt going to compline for me was a way to make space to really enter into and lean into the vulnerability that 
is very real, but that I was avoiding. I think that slowing down at night, the darkness we feel, the sense of supernatural vulnerability and physical vulnerability, mortality, like all of that isn't an accident. Like those are things we're meant to live into because those are real. That's what it means to be human is that we are creatures and we are, the universe is vast and we are small. I shrunk, I think, from a lot of that. And so needed comfort. I needed some assurance of God's love, of God's presence, God's reality in the middle of all that. But it needed to not be like shiny and happy, right? Like it needed to not be like, everything's chipper in the world. And I think that there can be parts of evangelicalism that are just really over positive. I mean, they're over triumphalistic and they're over shiny, resistant to vulnerability. I say like I needed comfort, but I needed a comfort that looked really squarely at death. And Compline is rung round with death throughout it. We just constantly come back to this theme of death and dying and vulnerability. And you pray awake, may we watch with Christ and asleep, may we rest in peace. And you just pray pray that again, several times asleep, may we rest in peace all throughout. And I think this prayer in particular, names vulnerability in really specific ways. Like we don't just say, God be with those who are weak. Like we mention the weary, the sick, the dying, the afflicted, the suffering, and the joyous we talk about angels like we like there's these very kind of specific things that we sit in front of kind of a name and doing that has changed my perspective on those things kind of a practical theodicy like and how can we hold on to the love of god and be absolutely honest about the brokenness and darkness of the world at the same time the words of that prayer is what have, has let me sort of enter into that more deeply because weeping and watching and waiting are a particular way to sort of enter vulnerability. But then we also name each of these kind of vulnerable human states. And in doing so, we remember those that we know that are sick and that are dying. We remember those we don't know that are also sick or dying or suffering. I've also come to see myself in all of those. There will be a time when all of those things apply to me. And even now, like, we are the dying. Everyone alive is is dying. Is dying, right. Tish, I... That's my good news. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like you wrote something about that on when Ash Wednesday fell on Valentine's Day a couple years ago. I seemingly remember that piece <laughs> coming up at that point you, you making. I was wondering, what have you observed about how Christians are grappling with death in 2020 that seems unique from previous years? Death is so widespread right now. It's, I mean, every day we look at our statistics of COVID, right? But they're so mind-boggling, 200,000 people, that I think we drown it out. Honestly, um, as I was thinking about how COVID has changed the way we view death, I'm actually concerned that it hasn't enough. What strikes me is that we, as a country, are, are facing this is a global catastrophe, a pandemic, and that there hasn't been a lot of collective mourning. How odd it is that way more people have died than, say, like 9-11. And I remember 9-11, just such a huge time of national mourning. And we haven't seen the same here. I think that Americans have a little bit of a, not a little, I'm just going to own this. I think Americans are resistant to 
mourning. We're resistant to grief. Not all Americans, but as a culture, many of us are, and we're kind of conditioned to keep going, keep moving forward, don't make time for grief. I talk about this in the book. Some of the very, very first words written in English in America were from Mary Allerton, a poet who sailed over in the Mayflower. She had a stillborn child, and she wrote a poem afterwards, and it said, there is no time for grief. There is no time. There's only time for labor and the cold. And this idea of we have to keep going, we have to keep working, we have to keep building is, I think, just like part of our sort of national identity of moving forward, progress, not grieving deeply. But there's been moments of crisis, like 9-11, where I think that that's been interrupted. And what's been concerning to me with COVID is that it, it happened. It hasn't been that we largely are continuing going. I want to be clear. I know that we are all shut in our homes. It's not like business as usual, but that there hasn't been a lot of time of really collective grief because it's been so politicized that both sides of the sort of COVID debate have gone, because it's been politicized, it's gone really to outrage. So we've reacted in anger, which is very legitimate, but underneath anger is always fear or grief. And we're not going to those deeper, we're not having as a larger society, those deeper conversations about grief. I feel like, you know, half the society is sort of downplaying this saying this is, you know, not a threat. And half of the society is possibly really afraid or really angry at the other half for downplaying it. So that's preventing us from coming together. And whatever side you think, like the fact is 250,000 people have died or nearly. And that's something worth just grieving and seeing ourselves in that, right? Like seeing the common, every single voter, regardless of who you're voting for, is going to die. This is a common place where we can come together in our humanity. I don't see that happening. I think our society is so resistant to grief that, that we need to sort of lean into our own vulnerability. This episode is brought to you by Church Law and Tax. Church Law and Tax understands the realities of church work, helping thousands of churches stay informed and get equipped with comprehensive resources on legal, tax, financial, and risk management matters. Do you have a question on housing allowance? Need information on selecting church insurance? Looking for insights on what is or isn't unrelated business income? Or how about some guidance on how to properly receive charitable contributions? ChurchLawAndTax.com equips you for success with access to the most respected and knowledgeable attorneys, accountants, financial advisors, and risk managers guiding churches today. Get the practical information and timely coverage you need to keep your church up to date and lead your ministry with confidence. Join churchlawandtax.com today. This episode is brought to you by Our Daily Bread Ministries, a global media organization that makes the life-changing wisdom of the Bible understandable and accessible to all. As a part of that mission, Where You're From is a podcast for those who believe it's important to stop and listen before we speak. Join us on each episode as we ask another Christian thought leader 
where you're from, and discover how their life experiences and expertise, even if we may disagree with something they say, offers us important perspectives worth thinking about. To see our list of guests, visit whereyou'refrom.org today. That's where, Y-A, from.org. I'm Russell Berry reminding you that it's not just about where you're at, but it's also about where you're from. You know, I hate talking about some of the utility of prayer because I think prayer is mostly about communicating with God. I do think that there's an element here where the Miss Compline prayer, you know, Ash Wednesday is this one of like, remember that you are going to die, right? This Compline prayer is like, remember, let's think for a minute about the people that maybe we didn't see today because they're sick or dying. So you're a mom and a priest when you go countercultural and, and and take the moments with your kids or with others to to kind of rem- remember the dying, remember the sick, remember that we are frail and that remember that we are dust. That can be a little anxiety producing as well. I mean, there's a certain focusing that comes with it, but tell me about how those you're engaged with your kids and, and others that you've been ministering to, how they're thinking about death both because of the cultural conversation about COVID. And then also, I mean, I take it that you're praying this prayer with your kids, how they engage with death through some of this prayer as well as through the news. So our kids have been somewhat shielded from the scope of it. They know a lot of people have died. They don't follow the statistics. I don't think they could even conceive of the hundreds of thousands of people. I feel like younger people that I work with, I don't I don't mean children, I mean sort of young adults, are sort of eager to have a space that acknowledges human weakness and mortality in the church. Like they're drawn to things like Ash Wednesday, the contemplative reality of our mortality. And I think because we're so connected to technology, it's difficult to remember how to be human, you know, how to be a limited creature with a body. It's weird, right? I mean, our technology is weird. Like, when I die, my Facebook will live on. Like that's a, that's a weird thing that that's going to outlast me. That there's this thing I put out in the world, this, you know, on Instagram, we project something of ourselves on the world, but that's not who I am. Who I am is this person with a human body that gets sick, that gets weak, that has the internet is up all night. I can't be. There's sort of a limitlessness in our technology that we know isn't real. And so I think I have found that things like embodied liturgy, things like silence and contemplation, things like remembrance of mortality, both on Ash Wednesday, but also also things like Jesus's creatureliness, right? Through Lent and through Holy Week and that sort of thing. And even like history, right? I mean, we're talking about Halloween, like All Saints Day is one of my very, very, very favorite holidays. I mean, All Saints Day is like part of why I'm Anglican. It's so freaking awesome. This idea that like we we are worshiping and learning with all these people that are dead. You know, my church has a columbarium in it, which is holds ashes of former church members. And on All Saints, like we remind ourselves every year that the the reason that's in our sanctuary with us is that these two are part of our congregation, that we worship among the dead. I'm just saying that younger people tend to be drawn to that, I think, because there's a dehumanization that comes, I think, in our broad spread technological society 
that all of that sort of embracing of limits is a it's a rehumanization, but people are yearning for rehumanization. In terms of my kids, I mean, you got to keep in mind, I've been writing a book about like human vulnerability and grief for two years. So they've been like with me. So I've actually been surprised how we do these would you rather questions on the weekend that we have from the book and do family would you rather. And one of it was like, would you rather have it was like infinite money or something or like always be happy. Would you rather be happy 100% of the time? And both of my 10 year old and seven year old are so interested. They were like, that'd be horrible to be happy all the time. We need sadness. We need to have times where we recognize things that are broken in the world. I mean, that's not the words they use, but like that we notice that things are not right. I just thought, oh my goodness, I don't think as a seven-year-old I would have been able to articulate that. I think my kids have sort of an intuitive sense. I mean, maybe partly it's because we've watched Inside Out a lot. <laughs> part of the part of the theme is sadness, but they they have a sense that there needs to be space for dealing with mortality and grief. That's not the way that they would put it because they're little. They know these prayers and pray these prayers. And it's tricky, you know, because you don't want to give your kids a complex about death. I have a friend of a friend who like literally she like wouldn't let her kids go to like see like go around graveyards. Like there was this real sense of like until your kids are above age, maybe five, six, seven, like you just completely shield them from the reality of death. Well, I think that that's never been what humans have done in in the history of the world. I mean, death was always so much more part of our life than anywhere. I mean, America's weird and that that we can't avoid death at all. So especially urban life. Right. I think kids know things are not right in the world and can actually enter into that in ways that we don't give them credit for. Tish, you had talked about All Saints Day, and as someone who has not spent most of their Christian life observing that, I'm wondering if you could talk about how that has informed how you process death and also the specific gifts, I guess, that it offers the church or language that it offers the church to process this? All Saints isn't, you know, primarily about death in the way that something like Ash Wednesday would be. It's mostly about like hearing these amazing, like celebrating Jesus's work in people. That's All Saints Day is celebrating how good God is that he takes sinners and makes saints, that he takes sinners and makes people that show forth his glory in the world. So I expand the saints to all people who died in Jesus, including, you know, people I know. That's primarily what All Saints Day is about, but it does remind us, I mean, okay, what I'm about to talk about is a total mystery. So I'm not trying to put any kind of materialist language on this or even explain this. We believe when we take the Eucharist that that's in somehow not just in Kairos in our actual time, but in, I don't know, not just in Kronos, our actual time, but in Kairos, in the fullness of time. So there's a sense that when we take it, we take it with all believers across the world and throughout time and with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven, as the liturgy says. So there's this sense that like everyone who worships Jesus like comes around this table. So my old former pastor Thomas would say, picture the Eucharistic table just spreading miles and miles and miles. And when you come and take the Eucharist, you take it with all believers of all time. So I'm taking the Eucharist with, you know, Dorothy Day and my grandmother and Augustine and Hildegard of Bingen, you know, people that I 
admire all kind of like these saints throughout the ages, you know, also dear friends. We have a friend who passed away in his 90s of COVID. His name was Bill. He won't be like long remembered as a saint, but he was this faithful, quiet man of the church and served the church, was deeply beloved, loved Jesus deeply. He he died of COVID of this terrible disease. But in some sense, like when I take, when I worship, like Bill is, was part of me worshiping Jesus. He's part of the story of how I got there, how I worship Jesus is his service to the church. But also somehow mysteriously, he is with the Lord somehow. I want to make clear distinctions here. You know, if we wait for the resurrection of the body. And I understand that there is kind of a what is N.T. Wright calls it, the life after the afterlife, which is what we're truly waiting for. With all of those caveats, there's still a mysterious sense where when we worship Jesus, we worship him with all saints throughout time. I love all saints because it reminds us that we're part of a big story. We're part of the story of the church. This, this story didn't start with me or my conversion or me accepting Jesus or, or whatever kind of the evangelical narrative. The story started with Jesus and has continued all throughout time through these real lives of men and women. So vast majority of our brothers and sisters in Christ are dead, but they are a living part of our relationship with God. Tish, as we close this conversation, what might you say to Christians who are feeling a strong sense of darkness right now or who might be seeing that in other people? I would say to them that they are right to feel a strong sense of darkness right now. I think that the world is dark now, that it they, it feels wrong because it is wrong. I mean, we were not meant to live in a world with a global pandemic and with this level of injustice and brokenness and darkness. So don't deny the reality of what they're feeling. Weeping is really learning how to lament, like learning to make time for grief, which is countercultural. But there's great Christian resources on lament. The Psalms are actually the biggest gift in this. But also, we have to fully admit the brokenness of the world. There's, there's nothing incompatible with the Christian life and being just very, very honest about how things can hurt like hell here on earth. Learning to walk in grief, not and not just alone, like grief with others and grief with the church and mourning. But then we don't just grieve; we we watch, right? We watch for the ways God's at work. We watch for light in the darkness. For me, in 2017, I really craved beauty. And silence, like silent prayer became very important to me to sort of tune in to paying attention to the world around me. But also I needed to see goodness. Like I needed to see that God was still at work in the world. I needed to see there was still beauty. I needed to see like there was laughter and joy and levity. I weep, don't deny that and just go sort of sentimentalize this time. I don't, that's not what I mean. But I think that we also keep our eyes peeled for light in the darkness, but also watch for like the glory to come. I mean, there's a very real sense that like, there is no way that COVID, that a global pandemic is going to make sense to us. There's no reason, like there's not going to be a reason given that sums this up and makes this okay. We need Jesus 
to set things right, to make all things new. The darkness we feel is a longing that's right. It is right that we long for Jesus to set all things new, but we watch for that. We, we need to wait in anticipation for things to be set right and let ourselves long. This is a good time to lean into longing Advent's coming up and to, to sort of watch for what's ahead, but also watch for how Jesus is at work in our ordinary lives, in our day. And then work. I mean, work is doing the things that we can do to comfort the afflicted, to help the suffering. Some of that will be things like political change, but I mean, really smaller too, of like, what can you do to bring beauty to those right around you, to bring wholeness and healing around you? And that's going to look really different. If you're a doctor, that's going to look really different than if you're a, a writer or work for CT or, you know, a financial advisor or a stay-at-home mom. What can we do to kind of be part of light in the darkness here? So those are some things, but we have to hold all those together because if you go just go to work, it's going to be really like, get out there and make the world a better place. But that doesn't honor the real sense of grief and mourning that you have. And if it's all about watching for Jesus to make things right, it can be this real passive sense of like, let's just wait here till Jesus comes back, you know, instead of being part of the work of redemption in the world. Make time for grief, watch for God at work, and join him in the work that he's doing. Thank you, Tish, for weighing in on that and your very thoughtful ideas about how to work through this year and this space that we're in right now. For people who have feedback or perhaps want to share some of their own stories, especially with regards to the things that we were talking about this week on the podcast, we invite you to send us an email. We're at podcast at christianitytoday.com. That is podcast with an S. Or you can reach out to us on Twitter at CT Podcasts. Now's the time of the show that we call Precious Moments. And in a dramatic shift from what we were just talking about, ask everyone to share something that has brought them joy very recently. So, Ted, are you ready to go? I am. And I am joyous. Today is my 20th wedding anniversary. So yeah, last week I shared 25 years at CT and I've got another big milestone this week. 20 years being married to my wife, Alexis, who is absolutely amazing. I am truly grateful. I mean, it's just, it's one of those things looking back hard times. I mean, just thinking about this prayer, there's been a lot of work, a lot of watching, a lot of weeding at night, a lot of sleeping and sleepless nights. There's been periods of tending each other while we've been sick. There's been times of helping each other walk when we've been weary, suffering and afflicted. But man, I'll tell you that Shield the Joy is we have also shared each other's joys and been able to, yes, shield them and and grow them. And my wife has just really walked, you know, that's one of the beautiful things about marriage is walking through those mountains and valleys together. And, you know, C.S. Lewis has that one line about praise unless it can be shared. And there's walking with someone that you can constantly like, point out how awesome minor things are and lament how terrible some things are together helps to complete some of those emotions. So, well, and she's, you know, (laughs) a great person to be married to. So I'm, I'm hugely grateful for that, for that today and for the last 20 years. Morgan, how about you? And you're on Twitter. Oh, I am on Twitter. I'm, Yes, uh, it feels extremely irrelevant now. But if you want to, uh, if you want bad jokes and probably almost no election commentary, Ted Olson on Twitter. I wanted to give a shout out to my writing group this week. We may have done that before on the podcast. We have been meeting for about a year and a half, and it has been a phenomenal place 
just to get a chance to write for about 15 or 20 minutes. Our writing group is essentially one where someone, multiple people bring prompts, which can be reading something and then finding your inspiration from it or an actual kind of more official writing prompt. And then we take about 15 minutes to respond to it. And then we all read our work out loud and comment on it. It's some about the actual craft of writing and it's also some about building relationships with people. There's some folks in the group who really only know each other through writing, which is kind of cool to have that type of experience with people. And we end up getting to have really interesting conversations I don't think we would have otherwise. So I'm just really grateful for that space to be creative in and also to process through whatever I'm thinking or feeling for that particular week. It's been awesome just to see how many other people have really grown and enjoy being in that space as well. So shout out to them. And I'm so thankful for it. I'm on Twitter too, I guess. At M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. Over to you, Tish. We have homeschooled our kids this year, which is something I never, ever in a million years thought that I would do. I mean, my husband jokes, this really is a joke, but not too far that like, as the children emerge from the birth canal, I like reminded him that I would never be homeschooling them. <laughs> um, and, and here we are. It only took a global pandemic for us to, to do this, but we ended up for various reasons. Digital schooling wasn't working for one of our kids very well. And so we were able to do this because of a change in my husband's job. And so we're homeschooling them for the year. There's been hard parts about that, but there's been super joyous parts of that, especially two things in particular. My seven-year-old was struggling with reading and I am her reading teacher. My husband and I have kind of split up what we teach. And I said, I'm not the homeschooling if I have to teach math. And so I don't, I don't teach math. I teach things that I actually can do. <laughs> um, I am helping her read. And it's been such a joy to see her start to gain confidence and emerge as a reader and reading out loud to herself, a catcher when she's not required to. And that's been awesome. And then on Tuesdays, and today is a Tuesday, we have started this practice that their poetry curriculum that we were using was just really boring. And I love poetry. So we had some advice from some friends. We started just poetry tea time. So we just like make yummy food and tea or the girls get like a special thing like cocoa or lemonade or like whatever milk or whatever and we we just sit around and have tea and we read poetry to each other and and a lot of it is like Shaw Silverstein and kids poetry but then I'll read them some grown-up poetry to expose them and then we have this book of children's haikus and my seven-year-old read to us today from it which is a real step for her to kind of like read aloud to her siblings and I I put like 10 books out on the table and they just get to pick and read the things they find funny or interesting and we eat yummy food and so that's something that we never did before we're only doing it because of this and we probably won't do it long but like we won't do it next year but it's so fun and it's total it's a total joy that that's is fantastic <laughs> and where can people find you on social media um they can find me on twitter it's tish underscore h underscore warren or tishharrisonwarren.com is my website. Awesome. Thank you so much, Tish.
That is it for us this week. Thank you everyone for listening to this episode of Quick to Listen. It's produced by myself and Matt Lindor. The music is by Sweeps and the transcript is done by Unmi Ashola. For those of you who have feedback, thoughts, reactions, stuff you want to process with us, send us an email. We're at podcasts with an S at christianatetoday.com or go on Twitter, tweet at us at CT Podcasts. And if you would like to rate and review the show, I just had a chance to read some more reviews this week. Thank you everyone who has come on to say such nice things. We truly appreciate it. We will see you all next week. Bye.